Hello, this is Charles Wiz. Tony Silva. And we're Two Teachers Talking. This is a podcast where Tony and I get together and ask a lot of questions about teaching and talk about teaching, teaching in Japan, teaching English in Japanese universities, questions, doubts, what we do right, what we do wrong. And today, this is episode 103, we're talking about change under the radar, which is how do we make changes working in large institutions or working for organizations that tend to be resistant to change, or some people would say highly resistant to change. And given all the top-down kind of changes that are imposed that seem to have not so much to do with our actual experiences in the classroom, how do we approach it? How do we deal with it? And what do we actually even mean by change? So, Tony, it's a wide-open topic, but I think something that's pretty close to the heart for most teachers, most classroom practitioners, wouldn't you say? Um, yeah, very definitely, because um, we're all kind of stuck there with um, what we think we're supposed to do in our own, from our own perspective, and um, what we're told that we're supposed to do. And, uh, and s some of us are lucky, and those two uh, uh, targets are, are pretty close together in, in an ideal universe, perfectly aligned. But most of us don't live in that universe. What universe and, are you uh, talking about? Yeah, right. well, an ideal one. <laughs> Call me Plato. But I thought the um, the inspiration for this was, was kind of interesting because the you know it was an article that that you and I read and, and then discussed and guffawed um, about. I think. Right? Yeah, yeah, because you know, kind of talk about the failure of the top down model of uh, of change and. Uh, the uh, the big example was uh, Bill Gates and his uh, founda the Gates Foundation effort to improve education and get all these great results. And um, you know, many years later, six years later, five hundred seventy-five million dollars later, um, they really didn't have the outcomes that they were looking for. And so, there they are shifting to uh, more of a, a locally driven solution model. And when you mean uh, local, what what do they actually mean by that? Do they mean by well, school district, statewide, or do they actually they, they, mean... They said, they said local. I don't know what they mean by local. Um, and I think that probably, you know, given the United States, probably has a, a different meaning for every state or school district. Some of it is... Some states, I think, have statewide mandates and... Uh, uh, expectations. Others leave it to the the you know local school district, you know the the, the township or the the village itself. Um, and I think that'll vary. And I don't know exactly what that that author meant when she said um, locally driven solutions. Um, and that's that's that that's can has its own set of problems too, right? Because depending on what that you know the local um, gestalt is, um, yeah, the local. Mandate could be, you know, teaching creationism and, you know, Fred Flintstone on the dinosaurs and, and, and all of that. Um, and uh, one of the other examples, I don't know if this was in the article or not, but certainly I think we talked about it, was uh, the, uh, similarly uh, Jeff Bezos, um, Mr. Amazon. Uh, oh, an was, another uh, rich guy. <laughs> another rich guy who knows better than everybody <laughs> who knows else. knows better than classroom teachers what to do. And uh, yeah, and he was uh, quoted as said, "Yeah, he's going to uh, attack education, and he's going to and he's going to apply 
the Amazon, the principles that he used in getting Amazon successful, and he's going to apply those principles to education. And of course, you know that every teacher in <laughs> the world is kind of going, I am not going to work at Amazon wages. Yeah, let's, no, let's talk see, to some Amazon employees to but, get their, yeah, their opinion on this. But here's something about the Amazon situation that is not talked about, and it's, it's the inequality gap. If you work at the Amazon's main office... If you're not in their warehouses, I think you're treated really well. I mean, they have that incredible off a building they built in Seattle. Yeah, man management the, and administration, sure. Yeah, those yeah. people are getting well paid. And but the people I, in the warehouses and the, and the people right, who are delivering who would, things out of their own vans. And the, so like, that's us. Those are the teachers. <clears throat> yeah. And I'd really like to know, Mr. Bezos, if <laughs> you're going to pay teachers at the warehouse rate or are you going to treat them with the respect and dignity that you know, you'd give it to your administrators and your management people. And, you know, why do I know which way Wait, this quick, is going quick, to go? The question answers itself, yeah. And I'm just going to riff on this for a second, Tony, because it really does not just hint, but really give the background picture to the problem in change in education, which is how much respect and how much appreciation and value is that classroom teacher held in by people. And by that, I mean, not just, oh, we respect teachers and, you know, we, we, we give them, we laud them for what they do, but in the sense of, you know, going in and actually, actually saying to somebody, you know, what is the best way to teach something based on your experience with these students? What do you suggest? What do you recommend? So it's just not this, you know, money thing, but this top down thing, but this overall, you know, that's what we were joking about, I think, with the Bezos thing is what's, you know, how many people has he really talked to? And why do people think that they know how to teach and how to fix classrooms when they've never been inside the classroom? Because if I went to Amazon and said, look, I know how to fix your company. <laughs> and they'd go, well, what experience do you have in logistics? And I'd say none. And we know where that would go, correct? Correct. But we were talking beforehand, before um, we started recording. And what was it that... You mentioned that the Ministry of Education people. Well, who, yeah, there's another example, the same type of thing, right. where people from without backgrounds in education, without experience, are in you know, charge of making these decisions. And it's, you know, it's not just Gates and it's not just Bezos, right? It's in Japan. Um, the Ministry of Education, maxed all the bureaucrats there. None of them have education experience or classroom experience. Um, we talked about Bezos um, in the United States. Uh, Betsy DeVos, um, the Secretary of Education. Secretary of Education. She has no education degree. She has no teaching experience. She's never attended a public school or sent her children to one. Oh, and oh, oh! So she's definitely <laughs> definitely in, qualified. In the know, in the know there for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> Another yeah, confidence-building step, or you know, piece yeah. of information. And apparently, so, she got her qualified for the job because of her campaign contributions. I guess. Okay, so <clears throat> just even how we've started talking about this issue shows that there is a very deep-seated, and I don't know how to describe it, emotion, reaction, feeling as someone who's in the classroom on a daily basis, responding or reacting to these top-down decision-making. Um, people and the top-down decision-making processes. And I'm trying to think, in my experience, 
that I don't know if anyone's ever asked me what I thought about how to teach something. Um, I know that I've been, worked at schools where they've gone through changes in curriculum, but nobody's ever really, I don't ever remember somebody coming in and saying, hey, Charles, you know, we're thinking of changing the curriculum. We're in a curriculum development process. What do you think? What do you think needs to be addressed? Um, and I've asked other teachers, and I don't know very many people at all who have experienced that. I think well, you might you might be one of the few. <laughs> Well, yeah, but um, well, I, I might be. You might be one of the few because uh, the example I was going to give is uh, that um, university where we were teaching together at the at the same time, where you were the administrator and you asked exactly those questions of us, um, and uh, we as the the teachers had a quite active role in. Um, uh, shaping what was going to happen. You know, it's not the, the curriculum itself exactly. Well, the syllabus and what approach we were going to take in the classroom. And we, yeah, you, we were asked and we had, we, we were listened to. So and, aside from that, yeah. um, I have a similar thing. Well, and in contrast, and this was this year, uh, one of the universities where I teach, and it, it, it just hits it, this right on the head. A little story. But there's something I want to get back to too. But the university announced, okay, starting in uh, 2019, there's going to be a curriculum change and a uh, lunchtime meeting um, to discuss it. And, uh, okay, lunchtime meeting. Okay, so everybody's lunch. I don't usually eat lunch. That doesn't bother me. But I usually do work during lunch. Um, and it's okay, fine. Well, nice to be asked. So um, the teachers assemble in, in, the, in the meeting room and the... Muckety mucks are in the front of the room, and there's a packet uh, in in front of each chair, and it's about 15 pages. And uh, she says, "Well, this is this is what we're thinking about for the next question. Are there any questions?" I says, "Well, there's there's 15 pages here. You might have sent this to us yesterday, like email. Troublemaker, so, troublemaker, <laughs> and uh, rabble they, 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 they look confused." <laughs> And then so everyone, like, of course, ignores the document and starts talking about what you were thinking. It's like, okay, this is a meeting about the new curriculum. Why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? And, yeah, several teachers, myself included, um, took this meeting as, a, as an opportunity for input and feedback. And one by one, we offered suggestions, concern, and just each time, this, the people at the, at, the, at the top table, the front table, just baffled. It's like, <laughs> and just say, like, I don't. Not only they heard anything that we said, but the, the, what, what the, we what we teachers didn't get. It's like, no, 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 no. This is curriculum. This is fait accompli. This is like, this is what's coming. This is not for you. We don't care what you think. This is it's like, do you? Is there anything here that you don't understand? Like, well, we don't know. Well, no, we haven't seen it. We don't. It's like, what are you talking about? And. We asked some questions about like, oh, it's in the document. It's in the document. You looked at the document. It wasn't in the document. There's nothing about it in the document. Um, and, you know, we asked for like a paper logbook in the teacher's room where so as we went through this and thought about it, had ideas, we could write them down. Uh, if they could set up a some kind of a web forum where we could like contribute our ideas, like after the class, we get on the train and we can say, okay, this maybe we can address something like this in the curriculum. So, and just like, Shoo, just a blank wall, just just stone face. Uh, it was just it was so disheartening, so disheartening. 
Deja vu again. Yeah. <laughs> but what I'm interested in, Tony, is what were some of the things that the teachers asked for or suggested? Do you remember? Oh, um, it was uh, this particular university um, ha has one semester classes, so students are grouped by major and then by level, and uh, they are tested before the beginning of the year. They're tested again toward the end of the first semester, and then they re-scramble the students, and students and teachers are given different classes of different levels and then different textbooks. Um, and sometimes you have some of the same students and sometimes you don't. So one of the suggestions was um, make it a one-year class. <laughs> um, you don't waste all that time in the second semester retraining a new group of students. You have the same textbook, so you don't have students in your class that have done different textbooks or different level textbooks or different teachers and different approaches. Um, different, you know, you know, talk about efficiency, like for them, they don't have to do the schedule twice, so they just do it once. And yeah, that was that was one of them. Another another was uh, specifically about um, how because they're moving to, of course, everyone is going to be using the same textbooks. Uh, they do have different textbooks for different levels. And it's a textbook that they chose, of course. Um, there were several um, being considered at the time. And they didn't go so far as to ask our input as to which ones we tried. We tried it's like you know this one. I, this, we, someone uses this one, and they say they say hate it. And this is that. This doesn't. This one doesn't work. And it's like okay, uh, no one. No one took a note. Um, but no, it's about the specific textbook about um, how that would. Again, there worked toward more coordination between. Uh, first and second semester. So when you get your students in the second semester, how will you know what this first semester student, first semester teacher did? Um, also coordinating two components. They've got the reading, uh, reading, writing component, the speaking, listening component. Those should be, and you know, commonsensically, I, I like it, you know, a little more coordinated, but there was no system for the two teachers to communicate with each other what they're doing or no unifying. Say, okay, if you're Okay, doing, you know, adverbs of location this week. Well, maybe we can make that part of the writing assignment too. There was no system for the two teachers to coordinate things. So there were ideas about that, but well, we haven't heard anything that any action has been taken care of there. So, okay, yeah, so, well, so top down. Okay, so given that this is a situation and that we, I think it's an endless list of top down. Sure decisions that we've been informed of that make absolutely no sense to us and that we know that the upstream um, information route almost doesn't exist. So this is why we came up with this idea of talking about how do you make change under the radar? Because if you go to these people, if you go to, and I say these people with, um, <laughs> I'm not even going to go use the word disdain. Um, there's the experience, and I think it's common to almost all of us that when you do go to people who seem to be in decision-making positions, that they don't seem to want to listen. They don't, or they listen, but you can tell that they're not going to do anything with it. And that's why most of the teachers I know who are working now tend to have given up 
um, trying to make change and very much focused on the classroom. And that's how we got to this topic of how do you make change under the radar. And when we say under the radar, it just means how do you do what you need to do? How do you make changes given what's coming down the pipeline so that you can continue to teach effectively and efficiently in a given situation? And that really broaches the subject of what, what do we even mean by change? And it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, we talk about innovation, it's a big buzzword, change. So, Tony, when somebody says, you know, well, how do you make changes under the radar? What are you thinking of? What are you doing? Uh, I'm just curious about that. Well, I've got I've got a lot to say about <laughs> a, lot, a lot to say about that, because uh, it's it's a lot of what I do. But before we get, go down that road, hold that because I think that's hold that that it's thought. critical. Because um, you you mentioned we talked about Gates and and uh, Pizos and Devos and Maxed, um, and you very I think maybe unconsciously emotional response to that, right? And yes, right. it is yes. very it's, it's always it's, it's always it's, emotional. It's visceral. Yes. Um, but at the same time, but, I think we need to be careful. Um, and it, it hinges on your question: What does change mean? Because, like, again, I mentioned a little bit of uh, you know one instance, like, well, what happens when local or, or teacher control goes off the rails? Um, just because we have experience and we're in the classroom doesn't mean that all our ideas are good. And of we, course, right? And you know who I mean. <laughs> but um, is it you know our our just? It, we need more than emotion. You know, we can't just sit here and crow. We know better, um, though. In many cases, we might, and in some cases, we might not. I think it's talking about change, and and again, just this very question of change under the radar. Um, how? And I don't think we can answer this today, but some kind of quality assurance from our angle to make sure that, well, yeah, we're not making it worse somehow of course not you not i or any of our listeners but um we How all know dare you imply who, that we know all the you know we know people out there who actually could whose classes could maybe benefit from a little more control from on top um but back to your question but before you do that i think okay. you've raised a real good point which mm. is you know how do you really know what you're doing is the right thing. And, but <laughs> part of that is that as a classroom teacher, you really are getting that feedback. You're seeing what's going on. And I think the kinds of people you're talking about are probably a minority. In, I think so. I, want, I hope so. Uh, yeah. One, I'm assuming that they're a minority. That's my basic intuition. But here's what I know is that if you put a bunch of teachers together in a room, and ask them to start making suggestions about what needs to be done to improve the classroom, to improve learning. Overall, the suggestions you get are really good. They're really solid. You don't, I have a hard time imagining or remembering a really bad suggestion coming out of somebody. I mean, there might have been a logistics issue. There might, have, there might be something in terms of practicality. But I think the key here is that when you get people together to start discussing things um, and not like the meeting, the discussion meeting you guys had for curriculum, but what are the things that the curriculum change ha should bring about? What do we need to do to improve, you know, student learning? Those, those times where I've been in those meetings, I've been amazed 
at how creative and insightful my colleagues are. Um, I'm always amazed at what people do in the classroom. And this, it really comes out to a basic point is that this whole problem we're talking about, this top-down attitude, is most clearly communicated to me in faculty development, professional development activities or programs that I've seen at different schools. And there's always something that people are going to teach you about, that they're going to inform you about. Whereas what I really want to do is I want to hear what other people are doing in the classroom. That seems to always be the most interesting, insightful, enlightening, and motivating things. So I, what I mean by this, Tony, is that this model, this dynamic, I don't know how to put it, this ethos or whatever, this paradigm, is all-encompassing. It's not just curriculum, it's not just syllabus, but it's how even the faculty development, professional development, how people are actually engaged occur. So, you know, I understand what you're saying that we have to really ask ourselves whether the changes we're making are effective and efficient, but I think most people do that. So, and I bring a whole lot of doubt into everything that I do, questioning whether or not I have the right idea. But I just wanted to mention that I think that if you put people together, there's an incredible balancing that occurs and that you do get a lot of really good ideas coming out of that kind of sharing. I would agree. Um, I also, um, when listening to comments and suggestions from colleagues at, uh, in group situations, meetings, whatever words, um, that uh, overall, yes, um, pretty solid well-considered opinions and suggestions and ideas about uh, what could be done to improve things. Um, that's generally what I see or just generally what I hear. Um, and I, yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, and uh, it's, it's educational for me to, to hear um, other people's ideas. It's like, oh, yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. So. Okay. Mm. So we've kind of, I kind of took you off track there a little bit. So if you can remember what you were talking probably, about. <laughs> probably, probably a good thing. I was getting a good head of steam there. But isn't but, it, uh, it's interesting though, that as you mentioned, it's just one of those really visceral emotional reactions, responses that almost all teachers I know have. Yeah. And mine is stronger than most. Yeah. I have a real hard time with authority. goes back to my Catholic school days. But anyway, <laughs> that's my problem. Um, I, I, for me, well, actually, you know, it's hey, your administrator's hey, problems, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no but, so, as I'm going to explain it, I, I've, I've learned how to do this without creating problems. Okay, so that's let's um, get to that. Let's get yeah. to that now. That's the interesting part. So, uh, the uh, experience over over the years, you kind of learn how to look at the the given situation you know the, the school the classes the administration uh decide what are the critical elements that that administration is looking for um and you know of course you have to separate for example the administrative needs you know whatever paperwork they need by certain date certain thing you know you got to distribute this information you've got to do these questions you've got to do this in your class that nothing to do with education right um, you know, questionnaires, information about programs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
But to ferret out, it's like, okay, besides all that stuff that we also have to do. From the administration's perspective, what are the, the targets? What are the educational priorities for these students? What is it that they think that they want the, these students to be able to do? Um, that's the first thing that you get to suss out. And secondly, you may have directives from um, management, from administration, about how to do that, about how you're supposed to teach these things. There, again, it sometimes the, their ideas are very good. Sometimes you, you look at these ideas and you scratch your head. And they might be, you know, actually maybe sound principles, but maybe totally inapplicable for the kids that you've got. They just, you, you know, whatever level, either the kids are going to be really, and I'm in this situation, I'm at both ends. <clears throat> I've got fairly high level students and they're subject to this syllabus that they basically know everything walking in on the first day. Um, certainly by the second, <laughs> um, because basically we cover everything that they need to know, but the, the syllabus is geared toward a much lower level student. So, okay now a teacher might just kind of go lockstep through the week by week syllabus that's provided and you know on this week you do page 56 through 58 and you assign page 59 page 60 for homework and you check the homework or you say okay <clears throat> i've been teaching for x number of years i assess the again i think again this um needs analysis at the very beginning we talked about it many times many different programs so critical so important for this for example because you know before the semester begins you have some idea where the class might go you got some idea of what the administrative expectations are until you get into that class on the first day you really don't know what you're working to work with you don't know how far you've got to go you don't know where you're going to be swinging you, you have no clue until you meet the students and you then need to make a, a judgment call say, okay, these are the targets. Um, how attainable are they? Because sometimes you have students at the other end of the spectrum. It's like, they're never going to be able to achieve these goals. They're never going to be able to do it. And um, I've had that situation as well. I taught an advanced writing class. I'm supposed to be preparing these students to write an academic essay, preparing them for their senior thesis. <clears throat> and that's fine if you're getting a you know a fairly advanced class, but the kids at the lower end of that, we're working on sentences and paragraphs, um, and you do the best you can, and uh, you, you familiarize them with footnotes and, and uh, citations and so forth. But um, you just know they're never going to get there. You can't you can't get there from here um, with those kids. So you make a decision. You say, okay, how can I? best serve the minimum administrative targets and at the same time for the student that you've got for your own you know however you arrive at this um, satisfy their academic need um, whether it's for the following year's classes whether it's uh, career oriented whether it's 
and just basically getting a higher TOEIC score or higher TOEFL score for jobs and so forth and so on. It's going to vary from class. Because some some students, they are very gung-ho and dead serious on getting, you know, achieve, achieving fluency. They want to live overseas. They, they want to learn English. <clears throat> it's going to be very different from, you know, students with a you know non-English major, maybe a tech major, um, have no intention of ever using English again. The, the administration may or may not have taken any of that into account <clears throat> when the curriculum was made or when the syllabus was made. It's up to the teacher to look at all the different factors. Okay, how do I make the administration content anyway? How do I do the best job I can for these students? And how do I walk out of the classroom feeling like, okay, I did a good job. I did the best I could. And it's different for every class that you're going to have. The, the writing example is a good one that you mentioned. I know that there's a place I work and we're expected in a semester to take first year students and they're supposed to be able to write an essay in English. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to need 15 weeks just to teach them how to write a paragraph how mm -hmm. to construct a really good paragraph. But the curriculum specifically states an essay. So this is an example of flying under the radar. I could go in, I could go talk to the people and say, look, here's my experience. This is, let me show you, let me show you what the output is from the students. Show me um, essays that students have written. Show me the methodology. And I know what's going to happen there. First off, I'm going to get a lot of uh, sharp inhale inhalations, <laughs> right, by people you know, the wonderful sound of um, opposition in Japan. And it's not going to do me any good by going there. So in that situation, uh, I just end up assigning, you know, that students have to write, let's say, three paragraphs on a topic. And I don't include the introductory paragraph and I don't include the concluding paragraph because the basic problem is, you expect me in one semester to teach not only topic sentences, but thesis statements. Right. And, you know, the, each of those, well, let me see. I meet with the students once a week for 90 minutes. And I'm supposed, and they don't really understand paragraph structure. They're coming into the classroom with a very weak understanding of even English rhetoric and logic citations and then of course there's even just how how many weeks do you have to spend teaching them about plagiarism is a good example so rather than going in and asking people to change the syllabus or making change i find it's a lot easier to say well yes my students did write a paper it's three paragraphs but i'm sorry we didn't get into introductory paragraph and concluding paragraph, but at least I have the opportunity to teach them something useful. And I think 15 weeks spent on teaching really solid paragraph structure. And at the same time, as you pointed out, Tony, we're working on even sentence structure, getting students sure. to write sure. grammatically correct sentences. I mean, I, I, it, that's it's hard to get 10 sentences of perfectly written English from my students. No, impossible. Yeah, even at higher levels, even <laughs> yes. at higher levels. And That's I'm hard. And I'm talking about a general education class. So ra the easiest thing to do is to take that syllabus and massage it. And I say, okay, well, essay, I assume they're talking about the traditional five-paragraph essay. And I think, okay, 
I will teach them, they will write three of the main body paragraphs, and I will not have time for the introduction essay and the concluding essay. But at least by the time I get done, they will know how to write a paragraph, and then it's simply a matter of stringing together paragraphs. So that's an example of massaging the syllabus and kind of changing things around, and I'm sure it's very likely or possible or maybe unlikely, I don't know, to get into trouble for that. But that's a decision I stand by. It's really, really hard to do that in 15 weeks if it's not a student who has had the introduction to writing class. And the expectation and the description, to me, has very little to do with what I see as being the reality of what students will produce. So there's one example of doing change under the radar. And I think, again, teaching paragraphs is the key for writing. And I think it's a good focus and it's worthwhile and it it meets up with my standards. Uh, Should I give an example of a change I want to make that I know is impossible to make? Please. Yeah. This is what I've really been tempted to do. I think we've talked about this before. But I've thought about this 15-week semester and I've most schools have a one-third maximum absence policy. So if you attend two-thirds of the class, you can get a passing grade. And I've thought to myself, I wonder what percentage of my students are really serious about learning, let's say, writing or um, presentation. And what if I said to students, okay, look, if you just want to see, if you're just taking this class for the credits, here are the 10 weeks you can come to class. The other five weeks are you're not allowed to attend because that is those are the five weeks for students who are really serious and want to learn. And that gives me five weeks of really intensive, you know, really highly organized classes with highly motivated students. And I think I could accomplish a lot with those five weeks with my really motivated students. But I know, for example, I can make the suggestion because it's not going to work. But here's the other thing is I really can't implement it. Yeah. Right? Even though... I think it's a really good idea. And the reason I can't implement it is because of school regulations. And, you know, but but even though it it matches the school regulations, it's a real interesting problem. So I just point that out as there's there's limits to what we can do in these changes. And that's somewhere between the writing class with paragraphs and what I'd really like to do is that these changes under the radar can take place. I like the example that you just brought up because I've been really close to trying to implement something like that several times because, you know, faced with a class where you've got uh, some of the students, like let's call it a quarter to a third, really, really want to learn. And yes. another quarter to the third that <clears throat> absolutely would rather be would <laughs> rather be anywhere else in the world. <clears throat> Including a dentist's office. And it's a, wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice to be able to yeah, just siphon these, give them like a minimal pass, set of requirements, see you on the last day kind of thing, goodbye, and get on to teaching. Um, yeah, I've I've come real close to that. <laughs> and I'm, as, I, as I'm approaching a retirement, I might get a little closer to, <laughs> to trying that out because it is a bit risky. A lot of these things, because change, change is subversive, period. Um you start you start going off path. You start going off reservation and stuff. That's you have to really think about it in advance. Like who this might affect, who might not be happy with what you're doing. You know, even if it doesn't affect them, um, uh, how if this comes to light, how is that going to be interpreted? Are you going to be rewarded for being innovative? Are you going to get squished um, for not 
following the rules. Oh, come on. We know the answer to that question, don't we? <laughs> well, you never know. You never know. I, I have I have uh, some of the programs, some of the, uh, the, the coordinators. I says, yeah, that's fine. Uh, I, for example, I had one school... Um, I found out too late because I don't I don't teach the class anymore. Um, the way that this particular school it was reading and writing, but it was the same students. Thank you. Um, one semester focused reading, while the other semester focused on writing. And the, 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 the syllabus that was given to me says it has the first one writing and the second reading. I says, you know, and I said to the corner, I says, you know. It would make a lot more sense if the reading was in the first semester. You use the critical thinking. You use the reading examples for structure, and then you can apply that with the writing. And they had the reading, and you just like, just you can do that. I, I said, oh, <laughs> I can, but the syllabus, ah, you can do that. And if you want to just mix it up all together, all year long, that's okay too. Just be careful if you have someone coming in the second semester who's a cyber repeating student. Um, make sure you give them a chance to catch up and blah, blah, blah. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> didn't see that coming, <laughs> but then I didn't teach the class anymore. So there we go. <laughs> I got shifted to something else. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's not, you know, th th those opportunities, those situations are out there. They're not commonplace, obviously, because. I'm sure everybody listening. It's like, where's that? Where can I? I want to apply. I want to work there. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good place to work. I I will admit that. Um, but yeah, that that can happen. Again, it's it's not uh, ordinary. But when you start changing things under the radar or you know or you know overtly, um, you know, be aware that yeah, it's change is subversive and. Uh, you're always taking whenever you're like bending any part of the rules, you are taking a risk. Yes, that's that's very true. And I think it also makes a real big difference if you're full time or part time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a big difference. You have a lot more freedom when you're full time and you can do things. But then again, if you're full time, um, you also have the additional burden of taking on that responsibility in, you know, curriculum meetings and things. It's like, you know, if you've got the, you know, there's a curriculum there that you can see needs a whole lot of work as a full-time teacher. Now it's your job to go in there at the meet in the meeting and try to change things there. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a minefield, man. Um, Cause you know, you might have, you know, this, you know, whatever it was. I'd use the example of like, you know, one semester classes, two semester classes. You don't know who's sitting at the table. That's somebody's baby, right? That's somebody's pet idea. They they pushed and had that implemented, you know, seven years ago because reasons. <laughs> I've, I've actually had that happen where I actually critiqued something and somebody said, well, you know, I did design this thing. And I was like, <laughs> oops, whoops. Uh-oh. But yeah, I think it's... Most of the people I know who are, are making changes because of all these situations are doing it under the radar. Um, and one thing, for example, a change I made is that in our presentation classes, we're supposed to have students present to the whole class. And I just totally opposed to that on a number of reasons. And I think we've talked about it many times before on the cast. But 
what I just did is I've just turned everything into small group discussions with students evaluating each other. And, you know, I don't say anything about it. Um, if somebody asks me, I would talk about it. Uh, until somebody asks me, I continue to do it this way. And I'm pretty sure the results I'm getting are comparable to what other people are getting. And I do know that when I walk past classrooms where the teachers have done the traditional presentation, where one student gets up and does a presentation, and I walk by the classroom and the only person listening is a teacher and all the other students have their heads down because they're sleeping and bored out of their minds. So that's an example of a change that I make without even though I'm very much opposed to the actual description, the actual requirement of having students get in front of a class. It works well. It seems to work well. But it's not something I advertise. It's not something I, I talk about unless somebody asks me. So I've done that. So I have the different... And it's interesting that it's almost like a scaling down activity. With the writing, it's going from a paper, a full essay, to more of a focus on paragraphs. In my presentation classes, it's going away from the whole class presentation to group presentations so that students have better chances. Um, and I've done other other changes as well. But I'm wondering, Tony, do you have like a specific thing you've done recently that you think would, has been positive, but you think maybe it might have, it might cause somebody to be concerned or question what you're doing or actually cause trouble? Um, no, I don't think that it would cause trouble um, because I have hinted at what I was doing and uh, to the to the coordinator and was not met with any resistance. But again, it's a the the syllabus for this you know first year type conversation class, which this year um, I have a very you know one of my classes is fairly high level, and so the. The material and what they're supposed to learn is just way below their level. Um, and so rather than um, concentrate on these mechanics of basic conversation, for example, op opening, you know, practicing natural reactions, practicing opening, pleasant, close. Ah, I, I have a class. I have to go now. My students know how to do this. Na quote unquote naturally, of course not naturally, but they they've had enough experience, they've done exposure, they've had enough learning, they know how to do all those things. Um, there's very little of my class time spent on those mechanics. Um, it's spent more on critical thinking, on expressing opinions, um, formulating good reasons. Um, the one thing like maintain from the syllabus and very heavy emphasis on follow up questions in. in conversations mm. and discussions um and so we do a lot of that and uh they they, they kind of get into it but um you can what i'm doing is you know giving like a, a perfunctory mention of the mechanics basically before because there are standardized written tests that all the students have to take the emphasis on the mechanics the week before the test says okay the test is going to cover this and this be very careful with this on this 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 in normal conversation, it's not so important. On this test next week, you're going to be asked to do this, 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 and this. Take a look at it. Are there any questions? And they, they do fine. <laughs> so uh, not really going off reservation there, but I am bending the actual content of that 90-minute class way off of what would be prescribed by 
um, the the department syllabus. Mm. But one of the things um, to get maybe more to your to answer your question in a more interesting way <clears throat> um, is that at uh, another school, it's not well, it's not a, it's not a different school than I just talked about. Um, starting next year, <laughs> talk about top down changes. Oh Jesus! Um, starting next year, this university is uh, moving from wait for it. 90-minute classes to 100-minute classes. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so um, I've heard from other people at other universities when, when universities have done this, they've reduced their teaching weeks from like 15 to 13. And they can kind of may maybe solve the problem of these... Um, Happy Mondays, um, where right. like, all the Mondays, so fewer class meetings, then they can have enough time to reschedule, make okay, up classes and so forth. But there's been, I have not been told that the semester is being reduced. It's just the classes are going from 90 minutes to 100 minutes, which is, of course, ask anybody who's been in the classroom, um, basically insane because 90 minutes is too long. If you want to you do anything, you want to move to 60-minute <laughs> classes a week. Um, you don't learn foreign language one day a week, 90 minutes. This is not what's going to happen. It's torture for the students to sit there and function in a foreign language for 90 minutes at a crack, let alone 100. So, um, Tony the Cowboy, uh, next year in these classes is going to have a 5 to 10 minute break in the middle of each of these periods. And the class is going to have a five to ten minute question and answer period at the end of each class. Um, of course, I can't say that because, oh, you're not giving 100 minutes of instruction. It's like, well, you know, no, but that other 80, it's, it's pretty solid. <laughs> and the kids will be awake for it <clears throat> and alert for it. That, I think that, um, that mid-class mid, um, break I think we'll do a lot to help people refocus, to wake up, walk around, um, get the blood flowing again, come back in and do a fresh start. And, you know, work it into the structure of each given class, finish a task. Okay, just say, okay, it's time for a break. Um, everybody comes back somewhat refreshed and not just half was, you know, because by that time, half of them are, are starting to doze off anyway, especially if it's a first period class, right? So that's like one example. Um yeah, that I'm sure that I could get in big trouble for, but um, I think overall it's going to be a more effective class. You know, I completely agree. And I, I'm having one of those visceral reactions again <laughs> 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 because it, it represents this, what to me is this Stone Age mentality that kind of exists. And I see it in Japan, and I think it's because I've just, that's where I live. But this idea that if you throw more time at a problem, you will solve the problem. Right. And it's just, no, that isn't right. And it's so disrespectful of people's time, which is one of my big criticisms of Japan, I think, is that there really is not very much respect for people's time. And or for people, I, individuals at all, right? right it's just, well, the whole notion of time is this, like, it's foreign. It's like, what? don't get it. Right. And this disrespect for the students. And I want to just say, show me the data. Show me that. Okay, so you researched this, you investigated this, and you've got real de evidence that says if we increase the class time by 10 minutes, we will get more learning. No, somebody has this idea, and they do it. And 
it just irks me. It's like, you know, what era are you living in? And I completely agree with you that uh, it's a hundred minute class. That's really hard. I mean, I have a problem going through a meeting that's that long. And I think, you know, t teachers forget this. I think administrators especially forget it. And of course, there's no teacher I know who would make that suggestion. Do you know any teacher? Uh, no, no. Not any no. teacher I know. Everybody I know would say, hey, you know, what makes more sense would be two 50-minute classes. There you go. In the same day. So change, you know, for, but, and I know, I understand the logistic problem, but America manages in the United States for people to have like class meetings three times, but these students have, they're taking 15 classes a week. And this goes back, I think, to your argument about failure by design. Yeah. That whoever designed a curriculum where students have a 90-minute class once a week, and then you take 14 other classes, is not someone who spent, understands anything about learning and how people learn. And Amen. You can see where, yeah. Like, Amen. Amen. Breathe, breathe, Charles, breathe. <laughs> <laughs> so part of it is, okay, so now you're giving me, let me see how I'd think this through. Okay, 100 minutes. I do exactly what you do. First off, I'd increase my review time. I'd have two reviews in the class automatically. Okay. I'd have the first review, or three. I'd have three reviews. I'd have first review, mid-class review, final review. Add on a question, an optional question answer time, right, where students have either they can ask questions, come up and ask me, or they can talk with each other and cover what they've learned, some kind of exit ticket or something. So, But the point is what you're doing immediately is compensating for a really poor decision. And you're right, you cannot go in and say to people, look, I'm going to give my students a five-minute break. I know where you can imagine what that's going to do. Right. So your example is a real good one, and almost every teacher I know would do something about it. And what amazes me, and this is where I'm really wondering, is I'm wondering when people make this decision, do they say, well, we know teachers are going to do this, and we're just going to look the other way. Are they doing it because this is something that the Ministry of Education is requiring? Is it somebody's idea? And the problem is, is that when we find out the decision, it's already been made. And it just is indicative, again, and I know it's turning into kind of a pseudo-bitch thing, bitch session. Um, but, you know, ask people what they think, and you might actually get some interesting ideas. So, again, and part of what we're talking about is instead of complaining and doing that, how do we make those changes? So you make those changes you improve the quality of education. I think you've got to keep good records so that you can say, look, I am getting performance from my students. And I think this is really key is that, you know, you could say, look, here's my students. Look at how the students are evaluating each other and look at by the end of the semester, how they're evaluating each other on higher levels criteria. You know, the rubrics are more difficult and they seem to feel that they're improving or they seem to feel that their classmates are improving. Okay, so I've got my records, I've got my papers, I've got the paragraphs to show. So if you do make these changes under the radar, make sure you've recorded the accomplishments of what the students have done. Or you've got to be really honest and look and say, hey, you know, maybe it wasn't a good move. If I look at the results, if I look at what the students are producing, it's not as good as what another teacher is doing, then maybe I should follow the curriculum. So you have to be open-minded. I think that's what you were talking about in the beginning, is willing to doubt and stay objective as much as possible. Right, right. Yeah. It's a hard one. I think that we could talk about other situations where the syllabus does not match up to reality, and I think there's a lot of those. Um, you know, for example, students will read an article in English and be able to summarize the article. 
I've seen this where people are supposed to read a, a journal article in like engineering or a, another field and it said that they will summarize the article, the key points of the article, be able to make comments on the article. Say, wait a second, this student can't even write a paragraph. So again, the idea is that when you look at the change that you want to make, make sure that you have the evidence and the data that supports your decision, that your reasoning is clear, and that you tie in the change you're making to the overall goal of that course. So that if somebody comes to me and says, hey, you did your class this way, and I can always say, yes, but if you look at what I did and you look at the goal, the specifically stated goals and objectives of the class, I'm in alignment there. How that was implemented might be different, but I still have achieved the basic goals. And that, I think, is the real key, is making sure that your changes align with the general goals of the program. So if it's an oral communication class, which a lot of people teach, and you decide that, I think, Tony, you mentioned that you spend a lot of time on follow-up questions. Right. And yes. I do that, too. A lot of time on echo questions, follow-up questions, using um, open-ended questions. And it's not included in the syllabus. It's because I'm supposed to have students be able to lead a discussion. It's actually in one syllabus that says, in an oral communication class, students will be able to lead a discussion. Well, I don't know about you, but that took a number of years to learn how to do that in my own language. But I can say, okay, you see, the follow-up questions fits in exactly to somebody leading a discussion. Open-ended questions, echo questions, everything fits into your general goals that students should be able, but I haven't taught that exact thing because that's the adjustment I had to make. So that I think is key and I'm always very careful to make sure that whatever changes I'm making still are in alignment with the general program or the general goals of the class. There, I'm done. <laughs> well, well said. Yeah, and that would be, I think, it's a key to do that. And I think most of the changes you make are also justifiable that way. Oh, yeah, I think, well, I think that yeah, you, you kind of have to. I mean, that's, that's what you're getting paid for, right? Um, whatever class that you're given to teach, there are some goals that are there. and uh, It's my job to get the you, students. Yeah, there. you may agree with them, you may not agree with them, but that's, that's what they're paying you for. And say, okay, and we'll do that. But I also, you know, that's my responsibility for, you know, for what I'm getting paid. But I also have the responsibility to the students. And again, needs analysis. It's like, what's really beneficial for them, given their, you know, present situation, their f possible future situations? Um, how do I, how do I please both of these gods, the administration and, and my students? I need to do whatever I can to make them both happy. And sometimes... Yeah, sometimes it's a lot more work. It's a lot easier just to go, you know, it's like, okay, they give you a syllabus. Okay, so we're doing 56 to 58. Okay, open your books, page 56. Let me know if you have any questions. All right, let's check the answers. And yeah. then I go, read the newspaper, you know, while they're doing that. Yeah, that, that's it's, it, that's easy to do. But, but, <laughs> and it's not me. I think something that's changed in me over time because of this issue. Um, and it's exactly, you know, what you've said is that, you know, we're paid to teach what they ask us to teach, especially if it's a GE class in English. And it's, I think it's the, you hire the teacher to implement those goals and objectives. 
I know that there are people who feel that I'm supposed to do what they exactly tell me to do. And there are times where I've actually said, no, I know for a fact that this is not the right way to teach this and that it will not result in the, in the results you want. And that has never turned out positively. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I've learned not to say that, which is again, why I do the, you know, under the radar changes, but something that I used to be totally opposed to, um, and this is testing and assessment on the first day, because I thought it really ruined the dynamic of the class. How about it? But I have found out that if I don't assess on that first day, if I don't give, find out what my student, or in the first week, find out what my students' vocabulary levels are, if I don't get a sample, writing sample from my students in the first week or in the first class, if I don't check their reading level and ability to comp- and comprehend, I have no justification for making any changes because then it seems I'm just making a decision intuitively. But if I go in and let's say I test my students' vocabulary and I find out my students do not have vocabulary proficiency of the first 2,000 most frequent words in English, and you're asking me to have the students write a summary of a journal article, I can then, I can note that, I can I have the record of my students, I have more work on vocabulary and teaching academic vocabulary, I can change my curriculum, and I can still move my students towards that goal. And I can justify why my students didn't get to that goal and why I specifically didn't start teaching from there. That is kind of laying a foundation for being able to explain and justify what you've done. And hopefully, if it ever gets to the point where somebody calls you out on your change, if you've got that data, and you can present that data in in a reasonably you know, logical way with, you know, your evidence there that you can possibly educate somebody who might actually say, whoa, you know, I didn't think about that. You actually took that. And I've seen this happen very rarely where I said, look, you know, I vocabulary tested my students and what you asked them, I can show you that with their vocabulary, it's impossible for what, for them to do what you want. And I've seen some people actually respond to that. But most of the time, I'm just making sure I got my data, I'm assessing it. And even though I know it really causes, it kind of ruins the dynamic and the fun of the classroom, but I find out that for that needs analysis and for me to be able to get to where I want to go and be able to achieve the goals of the class and have that freedom to change, I have to do that. And it's a sad but true thing. Wouldn't it be nice if you could arrange it so that that kind of... Uh, initial assessment could be done before the class begins. It's like, you know what I mean? It's like, actually, you you begin your teaching like in the second week, and the first week is, is just like this administrative thing. Oh, yeah, you got to sit there and take, you know, somebody else comes in and says, you gotta, we got to take this test. You do the test, you get your data, and then you go in there. <laughs> you got the fresh data, you know what your students are like, you go in there in the second week and say, hey, yeah. boom. There's a nice change. (laughs) I remember when we used to take our daughter, we'd go back to America and visit my my dad and my stepmom. And there was this really nice pediatrician. And she was wonderful. Our daughter's, you know, um, a year old, a year and a half old, two years old, I forget, you know, basically an infant. And that doctor had a nurse whose job was to give the shots. The doctor never gave the shots. (laughs) Nice, nice. (laughs) Yeah. And it's exactly what you just said. Why don't we have people come in and they're the testers? And they're the ones who 
have the first initial contact. Do the dirty this. work. Do yeah. the dirty work. So I'm I'm not the person, you know, that when I'm not I walk the bad into guy. the room that's giving the kid the shot. Now in I'm in the defense, lollipop guy. Right. In, in in defense where I work, they do give the students a TOEFL test and they give them a kind of assessment test. But that streams the students, but you know, it's right. It's the old story of um, about variation between interspecies and intraspecies variation. That actually, there's a higher range of variation intraspecies than there is interspecies, and I think that's really true. That I can still get a, a high level class, and the variation between the top student and the lowest student in that class is greater than the general difference between a top level student and a lower level student in some ways. It's harder for me actually sometimes to teach those classes. Sure. So, yeah, it would be nice, wouldn't it? It would be nice. But the key there, I think, is that you have to have your own assessment instruments that you rely on that you know work. And this is the um, vocabulary levels test that uh -huh. uh, right. was created and has been adapted. And I've now put it up so that it's on a, on a Google form. And the students get their results immediately. They know how many of the first 2,000 words. And that tells me a lot of what I need to know about students. A simple writing sample. Ask students to explain why they chose the university you're at. And just take a quick look, and that'll give you a general idea. Keep that somewhere so you have um, an idea. Um, walk around and talk to students. They're all the little things that you, you would do. But... Again, for those changes that you make, having some kind of record and clear justification is not just important for anyone who asks you, but it's also for your own personal clarity and also being able to explain to students, I am doing this because this is what I have found out. Anyway. Yeah, nothing to do with change, but that last piece is really important. Uh, explaining to the students why you're doing what you're doing, why they're doing what they're doing. Why, why are we doing this? You know, exp you know, explain to them. Give, show them that respect. No, we're doing this so that you can do X, Y, and Z. Next week, we're going to do A, B, and C. You're going to need X, Y, and Z to do A, B, and C. Yeah. That's why we're doing this. Yeah, one change I'm doing on my on my website, because I've been working on the website again over the break and revising it. And you know, my the setup of my class website has always been, you know, the, there's an introduction to the course, and then there's the links to the syllabus and everything. And then it goes week one with the date and classwork, homework, and any resources. And what I'm doing now is I'm adding the skill, or specifically what's going to be learned for each class on the website. So nice. It's, Good. Right. So it's going to That makes say, sense. Good. Week one, assessment, check your vocabulary so that we know, you know, what kind of vocabulary work you need to do. Number two, topic sentence by the class, you know, you're going to learn about how to, the structure of a topic sentence, paragraph. And I think that's a change, but I, it has, as you say, that doesn't have much to do with making change. But I do know that here's another argument for having a website is that if anybody ever asks me, what have I done in my class? I just say, here you go. Here's the link. You can find out what the students did. You can look at the homework. You can take a look. It's total transparency. And, you know, it's here's the key about that. If you do something like that, again, for people who want to make change, no one's ever actually questioned me about what I taught. And I think it's because they take a look and the, Im, the immediate impact is that this is really put together well. And I don't even know if it is, but it has nice pictures <laughs> and it has, you know, the TED Talks embedded in it and the layout's really simple and is vocabulary controlled. So, again, 
document what you're doing and be willing to put it out there and let people know. You don't have to announce what you're doing, but make sure it's available to people if they do ever want to find out what you've done. And you're gonna, I think you'll find out that at that point, they'll just assume that you're reasonably organized and you've justified your changes. And I think on that note, I really don't have a lot to add. Yeah, I think, we, I think we, we pretty much covered it. Except to say that, I'll just add that I had actually that kind experience too. It was a, a school where we're pretty much given free reign to do whatever we want. Uh, and uh, very high level students. And at one point, this is maybe six, seven years ago, um, the coordinator floated this idea. It's like, well, you know, we kind of think we maybe want to like pull the little control a little bit tighter and maybe you want to do this and and he floated some ideas and i says well this is what i'm doing each week they do this they do this they have to do this they do that and here's the web page and he goes <laughs> email came in and said well, uh, well if you're having to do all that then forget what i just <laughs> forget the other email just keep doing what you're doing thank you yeah. <laughs> Thank right. you. And that's a very similar thing that's happened to me where yeah. somebody's asked me what I've done. And it's right and there I, on the web. It's, it, it's, it's right there. And right? the fact that you have a website. Oh, but one time I did do this and somebody said, why aren't you using the school's learning management <laughs> system? Yeah. And I said, oh, have you tried to use it? And they said, no, nah, it was really difficult. <laughs> yeah. I was like, there okay. You go. And that's what I've told people. I said, it's just the students prefer the system. But anyway, again – that, I think, is a key, is that if you ever quote, for lack of a better word, if you are ever um, asked about the changes you've made, if you have evidence that you're organized, you're together, and you've got justifications for your decisions, and it's easy for people to get to, most people are not going to read through every little bit of your website for all your different classes. They're going to exactly, it's what you just said, Tony, they're going to take a look and go, wow, if you've done this, obviously you know what you're doing. Yep. So that's another argument for teachers to make their own websites or web pages for their classes, there which again, it, we've talked about before, is not that, no, no, I'm not going to say it's not that difficult. If you've never done it, it's a, it's a lot to learn. But anyway... Tony, I think this is uh, this podcast is our end of the kind of summer break, beginning of the new semester podcast. Yeah, yeah. The the, the second semester looms. Did you have a good break? I had a, a really good break in many ways, but there was uh, you know the, this was not a good summer for J for Japan. It's a hard summer for Japan. A lot, a lot of people. A lot of people had a lot of difficulties. We lost people. Not me personally, but I'm just saying, you know, the people died from, you know, flooding and the typhoons. Oh, we had the, the the big Osaka earthquake. We had the terrible heat wave. We had the terrible rains with the landslides. Right. We had the typhoon in uh, early September. Just this last and, few weeks, Hokkaido is Hokkaido still rocking and rolling every day. And they get aftershocks of three or four every day, several. Yeah. It's got to be hellish. Yeah. So I don't want to <clears> really say that, I, you know, my summer was fine. Um, but... Yes, I can say that. Yes, <laughs> summer's well, finished. We escape without we serious, serious yes. problems. Serious, yeah. any problems. Okay, so, Tony, let's make it a wrap. So, I'm Charles Wiz. Tony Silva. Two Teachers Talking Everywhere. TwoTeachersTalking.com and on Gmail and Skype. and You know, maybe we should do a Slack channel, too. Yeah.
right? But, you know, that was met with silence. So. <laughs> All right, yeah. Tony. Big, big silence. You be well, okay? All righty. You, you too. Bye. All righty. <laughs>